0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Shannon, and Shannon was married to a covert abuser with addiction issues. It's a story of generational trauma, values, mirroring, physical abuse, and the healing process. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Shannon. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you, Brandon.
0: Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Shannon is today, please do go to our website at narcissistapocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And today you're going to hear Shannon's story, a big trigger warning on this episode as we will be discussing physical abuse in graphic detail. So if this is too much for you, please do turn this episode off now. And this story you're about to hear is a little bit different from other stories, and that's because Shannon was in a relationship with this person for a while before things started to become abusive. And this person was able to keep things covert for a very, very long time. And then their addiction reared its ugly head. And when that happened, you really got to see what was under the roof of this person. And more things eventually came to light about how they were actually feeling. And it's a really interesting story. And unfortunately, Shannon had to go through all of this, but she's here today to tell her story, and she's going to help a lot of people by doing so. So without further ado, Shannon, the floor is now yours.
1: Thank you. I was thinking about the name of your podcast, and I was thinking about my son, And I was wondering if I would have raised him and he would have grown up, um, in poverty and neglect and abuse and never had love. If I wasn't able, if I was working all the time and he just was, didn't have his need met
2: and, um, he kept everything inside and he became deathly sick. And one day he just snaps on a nurse and kills her. And that nurse ends up being your
1: your baby girl, Brandon, what would you do? What would I do? And that's kind of like the way that I describe loving a pathological person. What happens to you and how crazy it can make you is seeing somebody like a child, act like a child, and then destroy the lives of you and everyone around you that you love. And that's, That's what I thought of when I thought of the narcissist apocalypse, because that is what's happening. People don't believe that there's narcissists everywhere, that there's 158 million narcissists on this planet. And that's just if we say that 2% of the population is narcissistic. So this is the narcissistic apocalypse right here, right now.
0: So I guess, tell me about your childhood. How did you grow up?
1: I grew up in the typical abusive family. Like Nowadays, it is more common to hear the truth about a family. So I grew up with a dad who was addicted to drugs, very violent, with a belt in discipline, hurt us very badly. Mother was codependent, allowed all this to happen. Um, I have vivid memories of her digging through the couch looking for money for cigarettes for her, but we went without and so I didn't go to the doctor or dentist, things that were normal. And I was just, I was slid under the radar in America. They, I look like I was fine. So nev- no one ever really looked beyond the surface to see what was going on with me. And um, there's partying going on constantly. I never felt safe. If I could say one thing about my childhood, Brandon, it is that I never felt safe. I never felt secure to sleep. I never felt like I was going to have what I needed the next day. And living in that perpetual fear does something to you. It changes you as a person. And I didn't realize that until I encountered a narcissist, how much that really impacted me. So I loved my parents because every child does. It just is. But I was disappointed constantly. I was hurt. I was traumatized. I disassociated. Um, And so I just played my part. I kept going and being a person in this family, even though I was miserable until I couldn't. I did get to the point where I started running away and staying with friends. Um, as I grew up, 13, 14, 15, I wasn't home as much um, because I could leave. And um, I really f- I felt like I didn't have anyone. I felt like I did not have protection in this world. And I was more like I don't need anybody, but I obviously did. And my friends, And that saw that they took me in um, and tried to be a family to me. Um, But that didn't really last either because I was too young, disassociated. I knew nothing about trauma or PTSD at that point.
0: So, for the people out there that don't understand what disassociation is, can you explain that to them?
1: Yeah, it's just where you tell yourself that this isn't really happening, that this isn't your reality, isn't real, and you separate your mind from your body your mind is very powerful. So if you tell your mind something, you tell your brain and body something, it follows suit. It's, it's weird. It doesn't have a, an opinion. It just does what you tell it. So if you say, this can't be real, this isn't happening, you start to separate and there becomes this disconnect between your brain and body. And I lived like that into my thirties. All of my relationships are a trauma response.
0: So as far as how you viewed yourself uh, at this time from when you were a preteen to a teenager, uh, did you have self-esteem? How did you think of yourself and how did you view yourself?
1: I thought I was not worth it. I was not worth feeding or caring for or taking to the doctor. And so I treated myself as such. I viewed myself as very unworthy of anything, just basic necessities. And so I was a doormat um, in all the ways. Fortunately, I was very, very shy and didn't want anyone to look at me or touch me. So that helped. I wasn't looking um, for love from men, per se, because I was scared of them. And I didn't trust them. And so it took me a long time. and to actually get into a relationship until I was like 19. And so I, um, I just felt awful, like almost like invisible, that invisible woman on fantastic four, when she did that, that's exactly how I felt. I just felt like nobody really saw me. How could my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents and everyone just allow this to continue this abuse and this neglect and just want us to get dressed up and pretend like everything was all good for Christmas. My family still does that. I've been no contact with them for five years.
0: So you used the word resentment there. Would you say that you were a very angry uh, young person? Were you outwardly angry or did you internalize it?
2: I did
1: both. I treated them very badly when I started running away and I just started telling the truth. But I was nice to people and mean to myself. So I had like this three-way split almost. I knew who the abusers were and I was not nice to them. I wanted friends and family. So I was nice to the people that I perceived that, I, that would be good for my life. And that's almost narcissistic in a way because I'm just trying to get my needs met, but I didn't really have anything to offer them. But as a victim, I didn't know that. And then towards myself, I would go days without eating. Um, I would feel like terrible, but pretend like I wasn't, which was living this double life. And um, inside, I truly believed that I wasn't worthy. I, my inner tape was like, I'm not going to have what I need. I'm not going to have love. And so those beliefs, they led my entire life. And I didn't even know how to verbalize them, Brandon. I didn't know how to say that out loud. It was so much torment and chaos going on the inside of me. Um, But I did play the part. And when I studied that a little bit and realized how much our roles that we play, that we stay stuck in them um, our whole life until we break that conditioning. And I was stuck very much in a role.
0: Obviously, you have your view of your family, but how do you view the rest of the world? You're now at a point where you have no security or you're not really trusting of anyone. You don't trust yourself because you're talking negatively about yourself. You're already a self-gaslighter at a very young age. So when you're kind of getting to the point where I'm going to be going out into the world, do you see it as a big, bad place? Like, how do you view it? Are you going to try and take it like by the reins and go? Or is it like, oh, my God, freedom?
1: I could do anything I wanted because of what I have experienced with my family, people that said that they loved me. The world does not scare me still to this day from when I was very young until now because i know what people are capable of i know that they can smile in my face and be molesting
2: their daughter at home
1: so i don't have any i am i guess it was a superpower right it was a superpower learning how to understand that people aren't what they present, pretend to be that it takes time to get to know people and that and that i've, I've been a very patient person when it comes to that After a year, I still don't think I know you. It takes years to really see how people handle trauma, COVID, you know, and how did they come out of this? Are they, you know, what, what did trauma do to them is something worthy of knowing. And so when you look at the world or when I look at the world, I see the fact that they keep going no matter how bad it gets wars, poverty, poverty all the things we got going on this world, there is such a spirit of fight in there that says, you're not going to kill me. I'm going to keep going. And so I want to be part of that. So the world is not a scary place to me. It is an actual like challenge where I want to, I want to be a part of it. I want to go have that fight that says, you're not going to take me out. I'm going to keep going, bruised, battered, broken, you know, wars breaking out. I'm coming through this. So for that, that is the one thing, because I've done lots of therapy, including EMDR, that I can thank that aspect of my life for. The superpower of being able to wait and get to know people and really get to know them and understand that they have their shadow side. Of they have sides of them that they're not proud of. And now which, part, which person is this? Is this a person who's pathological, who's going to lie, hide that, present always the best? Or is this a person that's going to say, you know, gently, here's one of my shadows and see how I handle it. And then I have an opportunity to grow with this person and really build with them.
0: So before we get to the relationship that this episode is is about, because eventually you did encounter one of these people and you had a difficult time with uh, them. I guess between that time and you now being a teenager where we last left off, Are you a reckless kind of person? What was your life like in those years up until that point? Because obviously you're, you know, like so many things can happen. You came from addiction. So did addiction become a problem for you? And and I guess what unfolded from there before you, you know, started to, piece things back together or maybe it took a long time for things to piece back together.
1: Yes, it did. So I was um I went to school very young and had a career that was very good. I had two little kids with a non-pathological person, but just an unsafe person that was involved in addiction. And I didn't want that to be part of my life. So I separated from him with two small children running a business and I stayed pretty much numb. Um, you can be numb with busyness. I was never much of a drinker, but I did use cannabis, and um pretty much for ten years after I got out of my house. so it's it's a long stint for me before I really learned. So I spent a just, like I said, disassociated, numb, busy, very, very um, focused on building a life for my kids and not having. Uh, drugs and alcohol be a part of it, even though I was being hypocritical about it. I couldn't be with them, but I could do my own thing over here. It is the weirdest thing for survivors to live like this dual life until they, until they integrate, you know, back in and which I didn't until after the narcissist. So it took a long time. So I was pretending to myself, but I was, I mean, I and even my youngest now, she calls me chill and she means you're strict, but fun. So that's what kind of person I really am. I just do what needs to be done. I have, a, um, I have a hard sense of what's right and what's wrong, especially when it comes to regarding children. But I also am, you know, am fun. I learn to just kind of adapt to and put aside all of the horrific circumstances and be present for these kiddos. Now it wasn't perfect because again, I was numbing out. I was disassociated. I was avoiding dealing with anything, including people, but then, you know, cue the narcissist. So that's, that's really, that's really how I lived personally. I was such a wreck. I was a mess. I was so messed up that I didn't want to admit it. I was dysfunctional and I was pretending that everything was fine. And, um, you know, working with survivors now, I, I am incredibly grateful that I learned as soon as I did, because I work with 60 and 70 year olds that stayed in it or they're still in it. So if you've gotten out, I'm so thankful that you did. If you are not out, it's going to be okay. You can still get out. It doesn't matter how old you are. So I just want to say that
0: so I just want to point out here for everyone if you ever listen to our episode with Ross Rosenberg he wrote the human magnet syndrome he believes that there is a match for every abuser for a victim and that there's a perfect match for them and based upon the psychology that we've already been hearing about Shannon uh, it would be someone who would get past this initial sniff test for you Shannon and your values your deal breaker someone that gets to know you and you them and over a long period of time not a short period of time someone will take it slow and then someone will be disguising themselves for a very 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 long time and someone that probably wants the exact same things as you like a family and for you security and knowing that they like the security of family so eventually you meet this person who gets past this sniff test so take us through your initial meeting
1: so cue the narcissist as i was finally feeling like i could actually do this i could be a single mom i could run a business and work and be there for them so i had a semblance of normalcy in my life that was one side of me that was the side that the world was seeing that my kids were seeing but the other side of me was a complete wreck i was numbing disassociated miserable sad and just putting on this front and never dealing with any of my issues. I was not living in integrity. And uh, that makes me sad looking back, but I also am proud of that person that made it as far as I did. So as I'm just starting to feel like I can do this and handle this, I get a ticket. It's a huge ticket. I end up getting in a lot of trouble and um, having to do all of these classes. So, I end up in a class with the narcissist, and he texted me the first day we met. So, he actually took my number off of a meeting slip and texted me for a personal reason, which is completely against the rules of those kind of meetings. You don't, you, it's for an emergency. You call someone on the phone if you need to. So, I didn't, I, of course, I wouldn't have noticed a red flag if it hit me in the face. But this person told me everything I wanted to hear, uh, seemed to adore me, kept this front up for years. So they, so narcissists can be, be, and me too. So as a victim of abuse and as a survivor, I was living that way. I was presenting one world to the, one face to the world and one face to the, to myself, which I knew. But so he was, you know, seemingly my soulmate wanted everything i wanted to do wanted to serve and help people that underprivileged especially we'd be down at the mission serving hot chocolate at night and talking to people and he had a 10-month old son at that time so everything i said that i wanted to do he mirrored back to me so there was somebody that all of a sudden heard me respected me and wanted to partner with me in doing what I wanted to do now that should have been a huge red flag for me but I just I he passed every single check and I'm telling you I tested him it was just someone that understood what I wanted to do like for this world and with this world that was what really got me and then of course the kids You know, I loved his son right away. He he did the typical abuser thing and introduced me to his son right away. And his mom, you know, he said mom because that's what my kids were saying. And I was like, looked at him and I was like, hey. And he's like, what? It's okay. And you know, with a healthy person, that's not okay. You get, you know, like it's. And so, all those signs missed. You know, looking back, I can see every single thing that I would see now. right away, but I did not see at that point. I was thinking in other ways. Here was this dad fighting for full custody of his kid, had full custody of his kid, pretending to be everything that I wanted him to be, super nice to my kids to the point where, you know, they were giving him Father's Day cards and stuff like that.
0: So, you know, a lot of the times we hear that if you want to know what your abuser might be like, uh, take a look at their uh, family. So, is he someone who comes from a family where there was a lot of abuse that was going on? Does he still speak to his family? And is he a victim player when it comes to his family?
1: Yes. So, he is the perpetual victim um, and he truly is. So, in reality, not only did he know that role, but he was had both dads abandoned him. His mom was very abusive verbally, physically, a, a larger woman. So she just would hit them and yell at them. And so, yeah, that, that is who he is right now. That is who he was born. Um, And it is, it's sad to see, you know, his first dad was very abusive, kidnapped him. Um, second dad adopted him and then abandoned him. And so I have a great compassion for him, even now today, even though I'm telling you I'm better off, I have compassion for that. That's what keeps, you know, so he was um, the victim abuser for sure. So, so I knew him from since 2009 and we got married and we met in June of 2009 and we got married in July of 2012. He had his own place. I had my own place. He was taking care of his kid. I was taking care of my kids. You know, it was like, this is. I'm talking about
2: years of playing a role. You know, for both of us. That's how we get trapped as survivors with narcissists because
1: we have unhealed, undealt with issues. And then we meet that and it seems like perfect. And it wasn't a fairy tale. That's the thing. We had kids, we had baggage. It's not like it was a fairy tale. It just was a mirror that I couldn't, I mean, you want to talk about narcissists, isn't that him looking in the mirror, loving himself? I mean, ah!
0: (laughs) So for three years, you had one version of a person and did not know that the other person existed. So when did the mask start slipping? And I guess take us through uh, that part of the relationship.
1: The mask started slipping when I got cancer. So in 20, we had a baby together. He still maintained his composure for years. I mean, our daughter was just such a great addition to our family. We had a family of six at that point. Um, In 2013, she was born. And so I got diagnosed with cancer in 2014 and um distress of everything he started doing drugs and um
2: he just his mask came out he couldn't maintain anything so the abuse doesn't start like you think it does the first thing that happened was and
1: seemed so simple but it wasn't um one time we were having an argument in the bedroom and he shut the door and wouldn't let me out. And I just felt completely out of control. I did not want to be with someone or in a room with someone that would use their strength against me. And it made me feel small and like I couldn't do anything to protect myself or my kids. But because I didn't know how to verbalize any of this yet, I had not done any healing. Um, I just brushed it down and tried to be stronger and say, no, we're not going to do this and just stick it out. And so it just progressively got worse. Like the barricading in the room is the first types of things that I can remember and raising the voice and standing over me because he's six five. Um, but then it was like, he threw a pillow at my face and he's strong and tall and that it was abuse. And I was so mad and I didn't know how to, To explain, you don't know until you're given language, and so I'm super mad, but I'm not yelling so my kids can hear that he just kept me in a room or hit me with a pillow. Like I'm not telling the kids that, but I'm yelling at him, and I'm keeping it all in. You know, he would say he's sorry, but just do it again. So sorry meant nothing from him. Um, but I know there was a sliver of hope that he wouldn't, that it would be you know, what I thought was back to normal, which never was normal. Um, because that's all you know when you're in it. That's all I knew. And I didn't want to bring my kids into this.
0: So at this point, it, it's safe to say that when these first instances start to happen, and even when multiple times these things are happening, you, number one, have many years of good times in in your rear view mirror to think about and be like this was the type of person who I was with Um, but you also have this family and you are you want this family you never had a family and you want these kids safe as much as possible and you want them quarantined or compartmentalized possibly in a big way because you knew what it was like to not be protected as a child and you're doing everything you can so they don't know what's going on and that is kind of what is running you these are all thought processes that are understandable they make sense of, of what to do and you're surviving in the moment as best as you can. And with this long track record to now this very short track record, you know, maybe it's just a blip and maybe it's going to get better. So you're just kind of staying the course. I assume that that's pretty fair to say.
1: Oh, yeah. the biggest pull for me was to have a family and all of the plans that we made to raise our daughter together with a full family with a whole intact family um and so that was very hard to let go of my dream was to and it became my dream um to have her and raise her with the family that loved her and put her first with the other kids, of course, too, who we love, you know, I loved already. And that was hard to let go of. That was the cognitive dissonance for me was the plan to have this family versus my reality. So cognitive dissonance is having two opposing beliefs and you usually choose the easiest one, which is everything's going to be fine. I'm going to have my family. This is just a blip. Like this is just, you know, but reality is saying, no, you're being abused. Your kids are witnessing this. You don't deserve this anyways. Regardless, if no one was here, you wouldn't put up with this normally. Why are you doing this? So it's literally just these two voices speaking to you. And they're both you. Cognitive dissonance is a real thing. And it can go on for years and years and years. And um, I'm grateful that I can look back now and talk like this to you without getting super triggered. Um, And remember what my story is and remember why I'm fighting so hard for safety and freedom.
0: So you mentioned that the addiction issues are when things started to slide. So besides the emotional and physical abuse, uh, does it manifest in other ways, like the daily functioning of household duties and things like that?
1: Financial abuse was a big one. I found out Um, using money for drugs and alcohol um, behind my back. I did not know taking our rent money and doing that. So um, getting calls from the landlord, like it was, it was really rough. There was, he was going to counseling to put on a front to everyone that he was trying, but at home giving our rent money away, spending time in the garage, um, doing drugs, Um, so drugs and alcohol in our house, which is the reason that I agreed to marry him other than I thought that I loved him and he wanted the same things I did was that he
2: was never going to do drugs and alcohol,
1: you know, he was clean. And so, um, that right there just grit on my nerves because I, that was not what I agreed to at all, but I always put everyone's needs above my own. So the kids safety was there, even if this was, you know, the kids, this was there. And I, the kids, I use them as an excuse for way too long because at some point as a mother, I need to make sure I'm safe or they're not safe. If they're witnessing me be unsafe, if they're feeling the stress of not having their needs met, then I am not providing a, you know, a, I'm not being a good parent to them. I can't allow them to witness that that is. And, but that's not what's taught. What's taught is save the family, keep everything going. You know, it's just in any home with addiction period, there's, there's survivors, there's victims and there's perpetrators of whatever it is. So both people need help, not just the one that's causing the biggest mess. Everyone involved needs help in those kind of situations. So
0: So here you have a situation where the number one deal breaker you have, if you knew this at the beginning of the relationship that this person was going to be an addict, you would have been like, okay, this isn't even going to start. So when you're in this role of I am being abused and this person is also now a full-fledged addict... Are you making excuses for them? Are you understanding what they're going through? Are you trying to be their counselor for them at the same time?
1: That is the best question ever. Because yes, I had compassion on the abuser in my life. For the circumstances they were in, how they were feeling. And I put their needs in front of my own. Yes, that's what exactly what happens. I don't think that I've ever been able to explain that like you just did, but it comes down to you thinking that someone else's needs are more important than your own. And if you're, if you're unsafe, that's not true. If I'm unsafe, my needs become priority until I am safe. My children are unsafe. Their needs become priority until they are safe. So thank you for saying that,
2: Brandon. Because now I'll be able to put words to what it is I had compassion on on the abuser,
1: because I did understand. I do understand, like the story. if it was my son and he had to grow up that way because I was doing this, that, and the other, and he killed your daughter, would you have compassion? Or would you just have rage?
2: Would you understand what was going on? Yes, we understand. But that doesn't mean we stay and accept it. Um,
1: During this whole time that I was going through um, the beginnings of physical abuse, financial abuse, addiction, I was dealing with cancer myself. So my mind was so focused on, am I going to die? I was recording songs and things in my phone to my kids because I really didn't know enough. And the word carcinoma kind of freaked me out. Um, and so I just had this resentment building because here, this person is, who's supposed to love me and is completely self-absorbed. And I'm taking care of the kids myself,
2: you know, don't know what's going on. Um, ending up having to have surgery, to have a huge, huge mass removed from my thyroid. And having a person that just isn't taking care of me, that I committed my life to, isn't loving me or the kids will, isn't taking care of them so I can rest. And, um, yeah, that familiar feeling of resentment and anger and disassociation kicked right back in. And um, it wasn't
1: until I fled, that I started feeling any type of freedom from that. But yeah.
0: So when you were needing help during treatment, would you ask for it? And what would the responses be?
2: Lots of other people pitched in. So people would bring meals over. Um, No, he was out in the garage getting high and drunk every night for like a year before i things you know so
1: but he was also to look to the world like he was going to therapy which he was but it was making him worse it was making him a better manipulator giving him language to things he was gaslighting me and flipping things around on me blaming me for everything using the newfound language uh, therapy is not good for narcissists who are not really trying to get healthy.
0: Can you give me an example of one of the ways he would gaslight you?
1: Oh my gosh. One of the ways that's all you want. (laughs) Oh, give me a bunch. Give me a bunch. (laughs) I would say, um, you know, you took that money and he would say, no, I didn't. I would say you, that really hurt my feelings. This really hurts my feelings that I can't trust you in this time that I need you the most. And he would say, you're
2: overreacting. You don't really feel like that. And he would constantly tell me how I felt and blame me for how everything was. Like, the house wasn't clean enough, so that's why he was in the garage for hours. Well, we have four kids and your stuff. Like, come help me clean it up. If that's really the truth, which it isn't, that would be something that you could do. Yeah. Yeah just invalidated everything that I needed or wanted. And I just was so humiliated. That's another reason
1: I stayed so long. I didn't really want to admit that somebody was able to treat me this way and I was putting up with it, accepting it.
0: Because that goes against everything that you thought that, that you now were.
2: I thought I knew people. I thought I knew people. I
1: mean, I was like, oh, I know people. I know that your grandpa can be evil. I know that you're evil. I know, you know, I mean, like, I just knew that people could be evil, but it's, oh, it's such a mind game from the beginning. Especially when you hear someone that you profess to love and marry say, I say, what is it? Why did you, what, are, what happened
2: to you? And he literally said to me, I got tired of pretending. I mean, it was one of those lucid moments of truth. I've had two of them. One when he signed the parenting plan and that one. So I've had like these two
1: lucid moments where I knew he was being completely honest. Can you imagine hearing that from someone?
2: I got tired of pretending. I mean, it's just like, this was you pretending. And I I mean, There's one part that
1: feels good and set free, like, okay, good. Then this is over. And another part is like, how could I
2: love someone like this? That this is my story. But it's not, it's, it's so common
1: and you're not, no one's crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not like ignorant or codependent or something like that to get in this relationship. It wasn't like that. This person was pretending and admitted it. And I'm just thinking, and it blows my mind how much people will pretend to get what they want. And then you look at the world and marketing like this <laughs> stuff, you're like, oh, that's true. People pretend forever. And I wanted to be really transparent about my story always. That's why I talk about how I was disassociated and living a double life too. Before I ever tell on um, like somebody else was living a double life, I want to take ownership of that's what happens to me too. My heart might've been in the right place, but I wasn't living in the right place. I wasn't, um, I was not integrated into who I am today and the acceptance of my reality and not living in dissociation, not being in cognitive dissonance, you know? So it's,
2: it's, I have compassion for that girl now. Whereas before I was just really like, I can't, I just ashamed.
0: So, you know, after I guess you, you, I guess you start to heal from your cancer and all of these uh, abuses had gone on. And eventually there comes to a point where you start to get physically abused more often. And yeah. uh, how do you mentally start telling yourself uh, things are okay during that period before we get to the event that? um, you know, starts the process of you leaving?
1: Yeah. So the, the physical violence escalated in, um, a choking incident in front of our children. So he grabbed my neck and our youngest children witnessed this. And that was where something in my brain went, this is not going to be okay. I didn't have any way to plan an escape. I didn't even think about that yet. I just knew that something had shifted and something was different and that I wasn't going to be okay if I stayed here. Um, But I still didn't leave because I was so sure that things would turn around. I was so hopeful that this domestic violence relationship was going to be different than every other one and he was going to get better and it was going to get better. And our kids were going to have the life that they, we always wanted for them. And everything was going to go back to this false belief that I had of promises that were not being kept, but it did not. So I felt like I was living, you know, it just, I was crushed because it felt like I had been free from living that dual lifestyle with just me and my kids and really just kind of to having someone that wanted to participate with me and then to losing that again. Now I didn't have that. And I, it was so, it was, it was too much for me to bear. I mean, I was immediately diagnosed with PTSD and um, you know, we were still trying to pretend we were still trying to get along for the kids. So it was very hard to, to accept what was going on because I was still pretending for the kids. They witnessed stuff. But I didn't, you know, I still acted like a family. So um,
2: one night before Christmas, it was December of 2018, I came home from a Christmas party and he was trying to
1: attack me. So he was trying to get to me and I was blocking the door. He called the cops on me, even though I was on the phone with my friend. I left and I didn't know the laws of domestic violence then. And um, somebody has to go to jail in this state. This dude's 6'5", and I'm me, 5'7", okay? And I'm like, well, he was trying to get to me and I was blocking him. You know what I mean? Trying to get him out of the door. I got arrested. My friend had to bail me out. I went and got my daughter and never came back. Because I knew then that I couldn't ever...
2: Trust him. I mean, dude, the cop didn't even care that he was trying to get to me.
1: So and I I had bruises on me one time and I could have called the cops and I didn't and I should have. He assaulted me in front of our daughter driving home drunk. So she's witnessed a lot of that. She's done four years of therapy because she talked about it. She told every check register, my daddy choked my mommy for a year. Bankers, grocery store people, people on the street, YMCA people, anywhere I went, she was just. And the counselor said that's actually the most healthy thing to do is to continue to talk about it until it integrates into your brain. And I didn't realize, but she was just getting it out of her system and she needed to because it messed with her brain so bad at, at four years old. Um, and she's nine now. So, yeah, Brandon, this is hard. Harder than I think. I think I tell my story, and then I'm like, Phew. it's still there's still parts of it that just make me because sitting in jail,
2: I knew it was over. Like I couldn't pretend that this wasn't happening anymore, and I was away from my daughter.
1: So many things that I just felt like I could never ever ever forgive me for at that point, especially that, you know, time away from my daughter, like that when she's a baby. No. What the dude? Um, and he knew the laws and he told me that. Well, they had to take someone to jail. So I wanted it to be you because I was scared. You were scared of what? Because my friend was on the phone hearing you be abusive to me. And she could have been a witness. So you tried to make it about me and got me taken away from my child because of what? Immaturity and fear and knowledge of the law. So when I left, there was one part of me that just felt like I was walking on streets of gold because I was free. I did not have to deal with any of that. I had my daughter.
2: Um, but then reality was there too. I had to, I had to endure the worst violence in treatment that I ever have in my life.
1: Immediately when I left, my bank accounts were drained. I was blamed. I had nothing. Um, Uh, He had a counselor at the time that said at least give her $200 a week. He wouldn't even do that. Like there was somebody trying to get me, you know, like gas money, food money. Who cares where I'm staying? I'll stay with my friends, which I couldn't. I went to live in a shelter, um, which was perfect. It was a 90 day shelter. And it just really cemented the fact that I just went through hell. Um, And that I didn't have anywhere to go because I didn't, I didn't want to put me and my daughter at risk. I didn't want to put my friends at risk. I
2: needed to sleep and rest and have peace after that level of abuse for that many years. I couldn't deal with any more chaos. I was done with the noise. So anyways, um, P's brother paid for him to get an attorney. And this process was horrific.
1: I talk about two lucid moments. One was when he signed this after all this nonsense I'm about to tell you. (laughs) But he took me to court. He had an attorney. I represented myself. I was living in a shelter. The judge knew. He was supposed to give over the house. He did not give over the house. He tormented me with this lawyer over and over and over again. Court. I didn't have. I mean, I represented myself. So I mean, I. Didn't pay anything either for this, but it had to take time. I was going in my work clothes. I had to find a sitter on my own because he was draining my bank accounts. Did not get out of the house months, months. The first order was like, get out of the house so she doesn't have to do that and pay the bills there. And he didn't. I mean, it was just over and over and over again, months and months and months of having nothing. Well, he made the mistake in his plan and deposited $2,000 into our account. And I went to the bank immediately and took out half of it. So many people told me I should have taken out everything after what he did, but I just went and took it out. Um, he ended up closing the bank account after that. And I don't care. Like I just had this moment of insight and I put that thousand dollars away for me and my daughter. And it was the best thing I did because I had this huge sense of relief. And now, um, now looking back, I would have started saving money way before this, but I don't, I didn't have the wisdom of domestic violence recovery. I didn't have the, wis- the wisdom of the abuse wheel. I didn't even know what I had gone through yet to even understand at that point to save money. Um, but it was a great opportunity and I took it and it got me gas money and just gave me this huge sense of relief. I, I didn't, you know, fortunately for me, for the first 90 days, I didn't need any money at the shelter. I was able to just be there and stay there and sleep and rest and go to work with my daughter. Looking back, I'm really thankful for that 90 days of rest. No one knew where I was. No one could have the address, even being off the grid from friends and
2: people that I love because it was so humiliating too. And, um, my daughter and I could rest. So
1: during that time though, I was also at court over and over and over again. And um, finally, what was kind of funny about the situation was that whatever attorney he hired ended up going to the hospital and not being able to ever come back to be an attorney. <laughs> so I was like, not that that's like a good thing, but it's like got me out of financial and court abuse. Like post-separation abuse is real. No matter how they can control you, they will control you, even if it's happening to show up for court all the time. Fill out paperwork, do anything. It doesn't matter. And I needed those hours every single hour because you only have 90 days at the shelter. So I needed to be able to get a place in 90 days. So, anyways, at, during this time, he didn't do any of his visitation. And one day, which kind of turned the tables for things, he agreed to the parenting plan where I had her all the time because he knew he couldn't take care of her. He was still an active addiction. You know, he wasn't showing up for visits anyways. So he signed this order that gave me full custody of her, six hours of visitation to him, uh, required drug and alcohol tests if I thought he was using, um, and like $100 a month spousal support, which was a miracle because I was like, didn't expect anything, you know, and just stuff like that. He came over one day out of the blue and had it signed. So I had two lucid moments, I feel like, um, and that was one of them when he just agreed to let me have her, he would, he would see her because we were able to flee. We were able to get away. We were able to, he didn't show up for visits. And I was able to say when she terminated visits in March, I was able to say, he needs to write a drug and alcohol test before he can see her again and reunification therapy and all of that. And so we've been free for a year, um, But some of that court order was do this, do that. He didn't do any of it. He didn't take care of half of her. He never paid the spousal support. I finally got um, the state to get it through child support this year, just like, what was it, last month? So, like, it never came all those years. He didn't do it. It was just one more thing that was a disappointment because to, to me, $100 a month means a lot. I can get her things she needs every single month. I can do whatever. It doesn't matter. $100 is a big deal. I do jobs for $100 all the time. I mean, it's like, that's a
2: big deal. And to not get it is another way to control you, to control me. And so, um, anyways. So we got into a 90 day place. I took on a second job. We got into
1: an apartment full of cockroaches. We still call it the cockroach house because we've moved five times in four years. Um, we lived there one year, moved into another house for two or apartment for two years down the road. Cause we had to get out of that place and it was just full of domestic violence. Um, and so I, we just stayed in a lot. These are not normal places that I would live. I, I had to, because I'm doing it in one income and in hiding from this person that went from our loving caring protector to this
2: so it's it's madness
0: you know at this point you are just surviving you're a family of survivors every day for you is about surviving and You are someone who sees things as challenges, but how are you feeling? How are you feeling about yourself? Do you have time to feel about yourself or are you just worried about your your kids the whole time?
2: It's a combination of worrying about my kids and feeling like an idiot. So
1: day to day, I just feel stupid for falling for this person. And that's, what's been the hardest to get over today. I don't feel stupid anymore. It actually makes sense to me, but then, and all
2: through this whole process, which ended up being 12 years. Um, I just feel like this, that was really my life, but it was like a nightmare and I lost so much that I can never get back. And I just now wanna stay present and keep going forward for my kids' sake. Um, And I do, and I just felt so lost. I mean, I was dealing with severe depression
1: and anxiety. I didn't wanna go out anymore. I ordered like grocery delivery and Uber. Yeah, I didn't even wanna drive my car. So I I just did what I had to for my child who was with me to make sure that she was doing her schoolwork, having a social life, seeing her friends. But I feel like I was in a fog still. But there is one thing that I can say. I felt better. I slept better. We had peace every single night. Now, that was something that I was thankful for every day. There was no chaos in my home anymore no cockroaches, domestic violence next door. Okay. But in my house, there's no, there's no chaos. I'm not yelling at my child. We're doing things in a calm manner. I'm teaching her about behavior and boundaries. So even through all of this, there is goodness, you know, because I am no contact or low contact. Cause he missed like over a hundred visits, but he only had her for six hours. A week anyway, so I didn't I was just thankful. Um, but yeah, that's it. It's a balance, right it's it, but it was no longer living that lifestyle of um going, going, going like everything is fine. We stopped, I stopped. She was in therapy, I was in therapy. We were healing throughout this process, too, away from daily abuse witnessing it or experiencing it from a narcissist i felt very very um depressed and saddened and grieving for what we're going through and thankful for the safety and doing the work and processing what we just went through so it's a both and
0: So you mentioned earlier that your ex was living a double life, and I think that you mentioned to me in your email that he was just lying all the time, like future faking you, but at the same time, he's hiding things too.
1: My daughter's father was really trying to do his visitation. He was trying to see her and being around and making all these big claims to her like, we're going to be a family and just stuff that was, you know, not okay. Um, and in January of 2022, my daughter questioned her dad about something. So they were always on the phone and playing games and doing stuff when they had time together. It wasn't much, you know, like I said, but he was at least doing it. Um,
2: so. I guess he had showed her his social media and so she asked him if he was had a girlfriend and he said no and she asked him again and he said no and she
1: found out that he did and that he got one on Christmas and was living a double life like she's very smart for her age and just very sweet and so he broke her heart because she's a black and white person she is very black and white and it's like if you are not if you are lying to her she you're not she's not going to be friends with you or like you it doesn't matter who you are like she's you know liars are not safe people and that's correct um so she said i, I don't want to see you anymore um and he just started being extra crazy because he got caught you know and so we fled again. I didn't want him to know where we were at. He knew again for a short time because of his visitation before he didn't know where we were. So we went back and forth and now he's not going to know where we are because we're in the actual program um, in our state. That's the address confidentiality program, which sends everything to a PO box and they only know where we live.
0: So why did he, why did he lie about having a girlfriend to begin with?
1: Well, because he was lying to our daughter saying that he loved, you know, her mom and that he wanted a family and he was, you know, saying stuff. I didn't even know half the stuff until we got into, uh, back into therapy in March. So it took us a minute with all the moves and everything to get back into therapy. We got back in, in March and she disclosed a lot of things. Like he had hurt the dog. He had done this stuff on visits that I didn't know, um, which comes out when someone's safe. So it's not her fault at all that she didn't disclose to me while we're moved, you know, while the trauma is going on and all that kind of stuff. She doesn't know, and it wasn't her responsibility. But um, so we have been, and we were no, we were only contact by email since January. So it's been officially um, one year of no contact, no physical contact, only those short contacts via email, um, which has what her counselor said been the most healing thing that's why we're doing so well that's why i'm even able to tell you my story right now so anyways in march um when we go in and we start up with therapy again uh she gets diagnosed immediately with ptsd and i get immediately diagnosed with complex ptsd so we spent uh march april may june july august um grieving crying not doing much so um it was kind of like this little mini respite and it was just this cute little house and so then in November of 2022 we moved here and um planned to be here until we do our next thing because that was just kind of like a short term thing with the place that we fled to but yeah the stability that we have now comes from no contact and really good therapy.
0: So you're not just healing from the relationship, you're also re- re- healing from your previous life before the relationship. So what are the things that are going on in that healing? What have you learned about yourself? And I guess, what would you say to the younger version of yourself to you know, make yourself feel or comfort the younger version of you that's just gone through all of this
1: so i would tell the younger me that you're going to be okay and it's going to be okay eventually (laughs) um and my healing process is about consistency brandon So I do something every day for my recovery. I teach on it. I train on it. I practice it. And the reason that I do that is because it brings a discipline into my life. And that's outside of this is outside of therapy. And because that's really important to me, coaching, anything you can get your hands on to help have some process, um, Uh, is discipline, but not something I can't handle being, you know, having a very short attention span and forgetting things or spacing off or not hearing the question when you ask it to me. Um, That happens. It's just the way it is. But for me, I have to bring that consistency in. So it looks like stopping doing everything that's going on around me and just focus on me for a second. And for me personally, that looks like putting my feet up on the wall. Now, I don't know if this subconsciously has to do with my grandma who had varicose veins and I just felt so bad for her. She always had to put her feet up or what, if that comes from there, but also from knowing how the body works is that it's a form with many benefits and can cease the like onset of varicose veins, but it has like hundreds of benefits. So that's not the only reason, but Um, It relaxes you, mind and body. And so for me, I put my feet at the wall. I let all the tension leave my shoulders. I let the tension leave my head. I stop thinking about everything I need to do all the time. Um, And I breathe. And I let the world slow down for 15 minutes.
2: And because I do that, everything else comes into order. Because if I do not have a
1: calm mind and a calm body, I cannot think rationally. I cannot make decisions, you know, out of a sound mind. And that's what I want to do. And so healing for me is about a discipline. It's a tiny one, one tiny discipline, basically. And, but it does a lot and it's fun. I've made it fun. And the people that have done it with me are, you know, Some of them are my friends now because it's just, you get to know people and um, yeah, I'm thankful for healing. It's not easy work, but I wouldn't be able to tell my story um, because I wouldn't deal with the fallout from doing it. I wouldn't want to deal with all the emotions that come from reliving it. When you're unhealed still, you can't do that. But when you talk about it and process it and process it and process it, It becomes just a story and there might still be a lump in your throat because some of it is hard. a lump is still in my throat, especially for the grief of my kids, but safety allows you to heal. And that's what I would say. Safety allows you to heal. No contact allows you to heal and think rationally about things, write them down, put your feet up for a minute, Um, get on TikTok and tell a story for three minutes every single day. And then just little parts of it. And once you do that, you're telling your whole story and then your whole story's out there and you can tell it and then you're healed. I mean, there is a magical healing art of some sort <laughs> um, from telling your story on little short forms like that. I mean, social media does not have to be all bad. You can actually use it to heal. So anyways.
0: And I guess what's the biggest thing that you have healed in yourself,
1: uh, the way that I see myself. Thank you. The way that I see myself um, is worthy of all the time I need to heal. The way that I see myself is that if I spent that much time disassociated in wrong relationships and unhealthy in so many ways, that I can have the time now to heal. So I'm not in a hurry whereas before I wasn't in a hurry with letting people in because I didn't trust them even though I did
2: and everyone does it um trust the wrong pe- people or person in their lifetime um I am worthy of the time it takes to heal and it's okay so like I would tell my younger self it's okay It's
1: going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And now it's, you have all the time you need. Use all the resources that you want. Discover things. Do what works for you.
2: So that when you leave this place, you leave healed. You know? And so I just see myself as worthy of time energy, effort, asking for breaks,
1: saying excuse me, um, thanking people for accommodating me in my real life and what it looks like to be a complex PTSD survivor, a victim, a survivor, an overcomer of domestic abuse, Um, and then appreciating people when they do, thanking them and saying, hey, look, this is what life looks like for me. This is, you know, and a thank you for making space for me and making space for other people. You know, like it's not easy to tell your story. It's not easy to live it, survive it, heal from it. None of it is easy, but it's worthy. And so am I and so are you.
0: So do you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening?
2: Yes. It's okay to say no. It's okay to have boundaries. If you don't like something, don't do it. If you don't feel right, leave. If it's not okay for you, don't do it. It's. If I could say anything to anyone is that you have a choice.
1: And you always have a choice in every single decision, every single opportunity that presents itself. You have a choice. And every choice you make towards integrity will heal you.
0: Well, Shannon, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You did a really good job.
1: Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you for hearing my story.
0: How is it? You, know, you are used to telling your story in a more condensed way. So how is it? telling it in this, I guess, longer form for you. How has it been?
1: Well, I'm not triggered. I don't have a raised heart rate. I thought I was, I got emotional. So to me, that just is, uh, I just give credit to practicing in short form. Like you said, I tell little bite-sized pieces all the time for cognitive dissonance purposes. And, um, and that over time has prepared me to kind of get it all out in one sitting and talk about it. Now, if I'll pay
2: attention for the next 24 to 48 hours to see if anything comes up for me. And if it does, I'll just journal it. Um, yeah.
0: So uh, once again, I really just want to thank you for being uh, a guest on our show. You just did a really good job. So a really big thank you. And I know you're going to help at least one person out there um, maneuver themselves and you're going to help them get out of the situation uh, that they're in. And you just did a really good job.
1: Thank you for having me, Brandon.
0: Well, thank you for being here with us again. And if you want to be a guest like Shannon was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions and then either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own support group. So if you need support, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's the button that says support group. It takes you to our very own safe social network. And there we you will see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night. Thursday afternoon and Saturday night, we have forum boards for you to post on and for fellow survivors to uh, validate your experience, validate whatever's going on in your life, and you can exchange information and experiences and just validate each other, get advice as well. So if you need support, please do go to our website to join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And at DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and website address for every shelter, no matter how big or small the town you are from. They will have it on DomesticShelters.org. It is a wonderful organization organization. So please do visit domesticshelters.org today if you need even more support. And that is it for our show today. So from myself and Shannon, we hope you have a good night.